Hello, co-host Sean here. Welcome to the final Rewind episode of our 2023 break. Season 5 kicks off next week with Laura Nero, followed by the three other winners of our poll, Shaka Khan, George Benson, and Boz Skaggs. Before that, let's take another look back into Season 1, Stephen Halpern, Eventide, from 1981. This was our first episode on New Age music a fascinating subject that we've returned to several times with artists like Kay Gardner, Irv Teibel's Environments series, Paul Winter, and Lucia Huang. Sit back, relax, and let Jeremy guide you through the sounds and history of the godfather of New Age music, Stephen Halpern. Enjoy. Feels good to press record. I have pressed record. Did you feel the tension leave your forearm as you pressed record? It slipped right out of me, like seed into the wind. Should I keep it recording? Just keep it recording. Let it record all the way on through until we reach the end of the episode. I'd buy that for a dollar. A podcast <laughs> about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be discovered and rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, author of the new book, Every Shoe Has a Story, The Fetishist Guide to Used Footwear Fornication, Jeremy Ruggles. Please consider purchasing my ebook on PDF now.com URL. And uh, we have another oh, special have to... guest, <laughs> head of product testing for Chris, healingcrystals.com, Peter Cook. I'm really concerned about all these dot coms we're dropping. I think we're going to have to buy them now that we've mentioned them in the episode. Oh, healingcrystals.com is very, very real. They seem to be one of the larger online suppliers of crystals, so they're going to have to just sue us. I think I should know since I'm the head of product testing for them, and I do that while listening to the album that we've selected today. Yeah, you got to make sure those whoa, crystals whoa, whoa, are whoa. working. You can't have any dud Hit crystals. Hit the brakes. Hit the brakes, Peter. Calm down. I want you... Too much? I want you to imagine yourself there at the crest of a wooded mountain looking out into eternity, beyond the bristled pine tops, beyond the muted shoreline, Beyond the velvet stillness of the sea, you are there, at the heart of nature's perfection, where each flutter of a bird's wing is as much a part of you as the beat of your heart. Eventide can take you to that place of special stillness whenever you desire. This masterfully composed album blends the gentle sounds of smooth water, distant birds, and a warm breeze with the magical touch of Stephen Halpern's sensitive keyboard styling. In addition to the famed anti-frantic alternative trademark 
series, Eventide is more than just relaxational music. Incorporating the lyrical quality of a classical lullaby, it extends into new horizons of creative imagery. Eventide composes pictures in the listener's mind. A more epic introduction to an album we have never had. And now we're just going to play the album start to finish now, right? That's the entirety of the discussion. Like, what else do you need to hear about this record? We legally cannot play it start to finish, Sean. How many times do I have to tell you? You're getting me worked up already. You're getting me worked up. I, I need... Was the song Even Tide from Stephen Halpern's 1981 classic Even Tide? What did you guys think? I thought it was going to be a cover of Even Flow by Pearl Jam. <laughs> and were you uh, happy or sad when you heard this current version? Oh, I was much happier. I don't like Pearl Jam. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I can never get down on that group. Stephen Halpern, though, instantly all in, huge fan. Every record, love it. All 70 of them, Sean is in for. I've heard a lot of his records, and I have not heard a bad one yet. True. And the that long introduction is actually printed on the back of the album. I just read it for our fans out there. I didn't just come up with that. I'm not at Stephen Halpern's. Level of genius. Few are. Few are. Few can really capture that anti-frantic alternative trademark. <laughs> yeah, anti-frantic. <laughs> Do you feel less frantic now? Yes. Are we, are we all at peace, ready to continue our discussion of this sublime music? Yes. 
whereabouts in Stephen Halpern's catalog is this, Jeremy? Do you know which numbered record this is of his? Like nine, maybe. I don't know. He just started putting them out like crazy. Let me let me give you a little a little back run into it. Stephen Halpern, born 1947 in Manhattan, New York, a very busy, frantic place. He started noisy. His enormously noisy. He started out on trumpet and was in the New York jazz scene. And he, it said he was disheartened by the New York jazz scene of the 60s. He probably thought it was lame and noisy. Though, it is where he learned his love of improvisation. And really, it informs a lot of aspects of his music. When you dig into the some of his theories and the musicality of it, it's kind of slowed down and the dissonance is removed. And other than that, it's kind of jazz music. Yeah, I would agree with that. It shares a lot of the same principles. And especially a lot of the late 60s, early 70s spiritual jazz elements that were taking shape at that point, which involves a lot of vamping, which is the concept of instead of changing chords and soloing over the different chords, just holding one chord throughout an extended piece and everybody kind of soloing over that in a, not necessarily one dimensional, but it allows for more of a meditative kind of vibe. And he, he definitely took that element and went even further with it. Calm drone. Calm drone. He didn't like New York jazz in the 60s, so he moved to California, learned the guitar, <laughs> and that's when he started development of his anti-frantic alternative trademark. At this point, he switched to the electric piano and wanted to really start emphasizing the healing properties of music. He, I don't know if he was a legit historian of ancient musics or not. That was, it's really hard to cut through what's real with this guy, to be honest. Yeah, I've definitely found that as well. He seems to be largely in control of his own narrative and uh, mythos, it would seem. Yeah, and I think that's largely because he's no one else, it, like, is even taking notice. I I was looking for like album reviews from like Rolling Stone or something like a major source and couldn't find any album reviews not just for this album but for any of his albums. And he sold like 4 million albums at this point in his life. So he's not a minor figure, but he's not I feel like he's not even taken seriously in critical circles. With this kind of music, you often, as far as the public consuming this type of music, I don't know if they're really so much after the artist by name, by brand, so much as just the qualities, the healing qualities of the music. I, I, I know it's sold under his name, but I, I feel like it's the type of music that pe people aren't seeking out the artist. Yeah, and you see that in a lot of his later a lot of his later albums are not named like artistically. They're named like sound healing for relaxation or this one is like deep sleep theta waves. They're almost sold as like products or like they're pre-made for a certain thing you're doing. 
There's like a yoga meditations one. I don't know. Well, I mean, his his whole concept was to make music as a healing force. So he definitely has switched the marketing to basically as a medicine. It's a new age medicine, not doctor approved, although he seems to have given himself a PhD title, whether he earned that normally or not. But yeah, that was like his original approach to this. He wanted to make music specifically that made you feel good and that was had like a healing quality to it. Yeah, we featured a featured a few albums that have made you want to dance recently and this one makes me want to do yoga. <laughs> or take a nap or just chill out, you know? Yeah, that's well, we could fork two directions here. I'm going to throw it out democratically. Should we get into the the marketing side of it or into the more theoretical side of Stephen Helpern? Let, let's get into the theoretical side because I, I really feel like his intent and his theoretical side of it is genuine. I would agree there. And, you know, his marketing came second, even though he was just as genuine about trying to make money off of all of this, but... I think his actual intent is is very interesting, so let's start there. Yeah, digging in, I think the marketing was more of a byproduct of him not having any real avenues into normal music distribution. So as much as you could kind of rail on that, I think it is genuine, like you said. But the primary effect, as you said, is he's trying to relax people and trying to find music that relaxes you. And he had an issue with a lot of modern music that he saw as being locked in time with the, you know, the idea of rhythm, you know, when the beat's coming next. And he saw that as a way to lock people in to something instead of freeing them out into a rhythmless, timeless space. Um, One of the more interesting ideas, and, you know, he has a lot of I don't know how much is marketing and how much he believes as far as the healing properties of his music, but there is one thing he hit on and talked about that really makes sense psychologically to me, Um, what he called the anticipation response that is kind of innate to most popular music, where things are in like sets of numbers and you're left anticipating the next beat you're anticipating the next chord because the the harmonies are generally something you've heard before and you're anticipating the chorus coming back you're basically stuck in this anxiety loop of being anxious for the next thing coming and then getting the payoff from it does that make sense definitely i've i've heard people talk about how if you were never exposed to jazz or improvised music at a young age growing up that it's a very, very difficult thing to get into as an adult if you spent your whole life operating in this pop music realm of, like you said, knowing generally how things are going to go and expecting the different elements, the chorus, you know, the bass drop, etc. And to kind of lose that control of knowing what's going to happen next is a little bit terrifying for some people. And yeah, this, this music takes that whole, a whole element to another level. Yeah, he he uses a phrase also, analysis paralysis, that really kind of clicked with me. Um, I think especially as a musician, you hear music and you start like analyzing 
what's the chord structure they're doing? What kind of scale is this? What is the rhythm they're using? You go into like analysis mode and you're stuck there and not actually in the moment of the music where when you make something that doesn't have rhythm and you don't know when it's going to change, you don't know where the melody's going, you can't sit and analyze it beyond how you feel about it in the moment. So I found that another very interesting aspect. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. Yeah, I know some people that really feel you aren't supposed to analyze music, which that approach pretty much negates the point of this podcast. True. I remember early on <laughs> in uh, practicing improvised and free jazz types of music, someone had commented about watching another group perform and just made made the comment, oh, that guy's thinking about it too much, which really kind of struck me like, oh yeah, like if you're overanalyzing the process of improvising music, you're kind of losing track of, the, of being that in the moment and being able to freely respond to outside influences or just general inspiration if you're becoming too analytical about it. So that's it's an uh, interesting thought process for just listening and not actually performing as well. Free yourself of the restrictions of your mind. Free your mind and your ass will follow. Yeah. Said George Clinton. I'm going to put on an, another track. The next track, I think Stephen was trying to play with that anticipation response I mentioned earlier with this next track called Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Perhaps you've heard of it. Many do know this song. No. <laughs> That's it's my response no whenever you say some obscure producer who played guitar on Jim Flobelberg's 14th studio album. <laughs> have, you, have you heard of it? No. Hey, man, Jim Flobelberg is awesome. Anyways, here's Twinkle Twinkle. <laughs> you need to calm down, Peter. <laughs> I thought it was Mary Had a Little Lamb.
was Baba Black Sheep that my mind was hearing when I was listening to this. And that was actually the second most distracting thing that happened while I was listening to the album. The first being that I was listening to it on YouTube and there were advertisements and Patrick Stewart was suddenly talking to me at one point. (laughs) (laughs) But I almost thought it was intentional. And then I realized that didn't make much sense and realized it was an ad. But yeah, I I then thought, no, it couldn't be Baba Black Sheep. They must be going with Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And I did find it distracting that it was a melody that I knew because I was then anticipating the changes once I started to recognize them. Yeah, I think. I don't know if either of you felt that way. Yeah, I think that was kind of his point was to like play with that anticipation response and try and like loosen you out of it. That's what I presume. I guess I don't know. I didn't talk to him. I should have tried to get an interview. Oh, that would be awesome. I honestly didn't pick up on the melody when I was just listening to the record all the way through. Well, you didn't you didn't know Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. You didn't hear that song as a kid, right? Cuz you were sheltered and homeschooled. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't allowed to hear music until the age of 15. And then it was DC talk. That's why I have this obsession. Yeah, that's why I have this obsession with vinyl because it's it was this new world that was suddenly unfolded to me. <laughs> <laughs> so that was your first exposure to that tune was the Stephen Halpern release. <laughs> yeah, has anybody else done that song before? It sounded it's got a, a catchy melody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, y'all few, are getting out in the people. weeds. You're getting out in the weeds here. Well, rain it back in. Stephen Halpern put out his first album, Spectrum Suite, in 1976. And it has been hailed as the first New Age album. Really? Yeah, it also came to be sampled in hip-hop songs and techno songs. Uh, People really dug that album way after the fact, though. Not in its time. That was actually the album that I was going to choose when I was thinking about doing a Stephen Halpern episode a few weeks ago. So that one is also very good, but they're all good in their own way. I don't think that one's cheap, though. Uh, Some reissues of it are cheap. Gotcha. Mm. He did say, at some point he changed the name of the album to Chakra Suite instead of Spectrum Suite. And he said, sales quadrupled overnight. It was a different name before Spectrum Suite as well. It was originally called Christening for Listening, parentheses, a soundtrack for every body. Yeah, yep. So that gets us to our next thing of him as the innovative marketer and really early kind of DIY guy in a sense. He recorded his first album at the first independent multi-track studio and claims also that he was the first client of that studio. Then he released the album under his own label that he created, pretty much because no record labels had any interest in what he was doing. There's no drums, there's no words. They didn't get it. So they just told him to, you know, kick rocks, and he was like, fine, I'll do it on my own. Yeah, and he made it work, too. I mean, he was a, as far as I could tell, he pretty much became a millionaire strictly on DIY record sales and just, like, 
built it up to the point of labels are like, okay, fine. If you're going to make that much money, then we'll take a cut. Yeah, that's why I took the, the DIY route. I thought I could be like Stephen Halpern. <laughs> yeah, he continued releasing completely independently under his own label until 1985 when he signed with Gramavision and got more traditional distribution. But previous to that, because he was doing it on his own, he didn't. they didn't put his records in record stores. Record stores had no interest in DIY music in those days. So he went to where he saw his audience being. He followed the Granola Trail and uh, started getting his records in health food stores, in like yoga practice spaces, in bookstores, and just, yeah, found these alternative routes of places to sell his albums and found a hungry audience for them. Do you think he would have been even half as successful as if he uh, tried to stay in New York doing that same thing? I'm sure the move to California aided this process a lot. (laughs) I would agree there. There was kind of a burgeoning New Agey scene in California through the 70s into the 80s. Yeah, he led workshops at a place called the Esalon Institute in Big Sur. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what I was thinking of. Are you familiar with that place, Peter? Well, I know Charles Manson went there right before the Tate LaBianca murders. <laughs> well, then, that, that wasn't what I had in mind, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine not. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, the Esalon Institute is in Big Sur. A couple of Stanford graduates bought up a hot spring that was right near the coast, coastal California, and started doing workshops, and it kind of became a hub of counterculture in that time. And they had workshops led by Ansel Adams, Joan Baez, Joseph Campbell, Deepak Chopra, Bucky Fuller, Terrence McKenna, Aldous Huxley, Alan Watts, Robert Anton Wilson, Susan Sontag, Marion Woodman, and that's there's like a ton more huge names that all did workshops at this little hippie hub in California, and Stephen Halpern also did. Well, I think he was in the right demographic with this music. Absolutely, and this album came out in 1981, which. Also, the year this album came out, he went into the Great Pyramid in Egypt and recorded an album of him ooing and eyeing in the different corridors of the Great Pyramid. Which is directly inspired by Paul Horn doing the same thing a few years before that, I gotta say. Is that the flute one? Yeah, that's another one of the landmark early uh, New Age records is Paul Horn's Inside, where he plays flute inside the Great Pyramid. Yeah. Yeah, Stephen Halpern, I guess, just did like chants and ohms and stuff inside the pyramid and recorded it. That's cool. You know, doing his own thing, not a complete ripoff. I respect that. Whoa, burn. I was trying to find some kind of Mike Patton joke to make, but I'll just spare us that. <laughs> we, we can all just imagine our own Mike Patton jokes. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, he continued making 
a whole bunch of albums like this. There's very little information on his personal life because he's not like a celebrity figure at all. And he, like Sean said earlier, he kind of seems to control the narrative of his image because nobody else is trying to find it. I read multiple interviews and they're all with like healing crystal for sound movement.com interview with Stephen Helpern. That was another dot com for you, Peter. Oh, man, <laughs> we're going to have to be buying up these websites after the fact, yeah. these domains. That is something I've definitely noticed with new age music in general, though. There's not a lot of outside attention from, you know, tastemakers or what have you. It's the people that have discovered it and gotten very interested in it and the, you know, organizations and businesses that are part of the general industry. And it's, it's very self-contained. It's a, it's a strong following of these people, but everyone else seems to not take notice. The first time I ever noticed someone else kind of talking about these records was when Light in the Attic did their compilation of all like independent new age music called I Am the Center. That came out maybe, I don't know, somewhere between five and 10 years ago. And that was the first time I was like, oh, like this cool label is doing an entire box set of new age music. Maybe that's something I should start digging into and listen to that and then start listening to Stephen Halpern records and was like blown away at how interesting and pioneering a lot of this music is. I mean, there's a lot of like very cheesy crap. There's a lot of like cash in stuff, but I don't know. It's really interesting the direction a lot of these people, especially Stephen Halpern was going. Yeah. I don't think there's too many artists, the new wave or new wave, new age music how many people, artists' names are known to the general public? Yanni and Enya? Brian Eno, maybe? Yeah, he yeah, might fall into that. Sense. When I was researching this, I read two words that gave me like a hardcore memory flashback that I had forgotten that I realized was my introduction to New Age music. But I read the words binaural beats. Have you guys heard of that? Binaural beats? That sounds super familiar. Yeah. It's this thing where you put two tones, two different, slightly different tones, one in each ear, and then it creates like a ghost tone in your brain that your brain is trying to like figure out the difference between the tones. And it's supposedly like in certain frequency ranges can make you relax or sleepy. But I was introduced to those and this whole idea by seeing on the internet about these cyber drugs that you could listen to this audio file and it would be like you're on ecstasy or this one would be like you smoked weed or um, it was <laughs> a strange like internet gimmick of the late 90s, early aughts. And... When you're 15 or 16, you're like, wow, I could listen to a sound file and feel high or something. So I like <laughs> obviously had to download every one of those I could find on SoulSeek or LimeWire. And I was just this weirdo 15-year-old listening to these like wavery, shimmery sounds for half an hour and wondering <laughs> if I felt any different. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, at least you... At least you weren't getting high. You were just simulating it. True. And, you know, that's not even that different from the the way they advertised a lot of these records, even in the 70s. 
Like there's the whole environment series that's like nature sounds and some kind of meditation sounds and all of the like quotes and hype stickers they would put on it was like, my life was bland and boring and shades of gray until I put this record on and it was an explosion of color. (laughs) Sex is interesting now. (laughs) All this like ridiculous stuff. So it makes sense that the 90s would still be just tweaking that general advertising slightly for a for a new generation. True. But it also, I mean, I don't believe in the efficacy of binaural beats, but they actually have done studies and found that relaxing music does in fact relax your body and you can actually adjust your moods and feelings based on, you know, what kind of music you're listening to. That seems kind of obvious, but there are like benefits to reducing your stress and anxiety by listening to relaxing music and allowing your body to relax and heal itself. Do you remember, Jeremy, about eight years ago when both you and I were working jobs where we had to get up at like three and four in the morning? Yes. Yeah, we were in that plight together i remember i was taking classes at the same time going to them afterwards and so i'd be getting out to school around noon having been up for like seven or eight hours and worked already and i was taking a health and wellness fitness class and we had one day where we they had us lay in a dark room and put on music like this and i just passed right out right in the middle of the class (laughs) like actually just conked out it was so relaxing and I kind of had flashbacks to that, my my moment of peace amidst all that chaos, uh-huh. <laughs> listening to this record. It is amazing how immediately relaxing this kind of music can be. If you're sitting or laying in a comfortable position and you put this on loud enough so that it kind of surrounds you, but not so loud that it's painful or anything, obviously, it just, you immediately feel very relaxed. Like all of your muscles start to kind of chill out and you kind of let your mind wander a little bit. It's it's pretty amazing. Didn't you put you put your family to sleep previewing this record, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Sam just straight up took a nap while listening to this record earlier today. Well, let's let's let our listeners feel that one more time. We're going to listen to Closing Chords Opening Doors for John and Yoko. And he claims that he made this song moments after receiving the news about John Lennon being murdered. Yeah, it's pretty intense. I was reading that. Yeah. Well, listen to this song, and really, I I would like our listeners to meditate on what can music do.
I wanted to mention before I forgot, a mere two hours ago, when I was driving home from work, about to prepare to record this podcast, listening to NPR like a good liberal sheeple, they were talking about how Spotify, of course they're promoting a corporation on NPR, how Spotify is gaining a ton of listeners during this pandemic, and they're all searching for chill music and also for meditation podcasts. And I was like, whoa, I'm about to do a podcast on those things. I've definitely noticed an uptick in that kind of vibe in my record sales. I've, I've had a few friends that have been like, hey, I want to buy some music. I need some like chill, just deep vibes. What are your recommendations? And I, I think I've recommended Stephen Halpern to a couple of those people for sure. Yeah. This is totally the type of music that would be featured on Hearts of Space. Yeah, I was, I was hoping we were going to talk about that that show. Jeremy, are you familiar with Hearts of Space? No, I don't know what that is. Peter, you got the description for the people? Well, I don't know what night it comes on. It is an NPR program, correct? Yeah, it's been running for a very long time, as far as I know. I think, I think since about as long as Stephen Halpern's been making music, releasing music, it's... Music all along this vibe that's very new agey, spacey. It's definitely like space themed music. And yeah, my brother used to tune into it and, and show that to me. And it always kind of struck me as borderline kraut rock stuff, like Popol Vuh and groups like that, Cluster, which are obviously much more high-tier record-collecting stuff than most of this new-age music is considered. Yeah, that was the amazing thing about Hearts of Space, for sure. Um, and they started in 1973. I just looked it up. But I remember okay. being a little kid and just like not being able to sleep and you know, tuning in the radio in the middle of the night with my like portable battery-powered radio and finding this show that was playing all this weird like synthesizer spacey music and the dj was talking really quietly and slowly and welcome to hearts of space and it was just like this is amazing i don't know what's going on and uh I, yeah i've since found that they were really good at playing some very deep stuff at points you know they were playing some kraut rock and some amazing synthesizer pioneering stuff and some weird music Right alongside, you know, your most generic, you know, music for chakra healing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, once again, you know, it's a program that played in the middle of the night on NPR. So it's, it's such a weird, dedicated underground following for this kind of stuff. I was more of a Art Bell coast to coast kind of guy. <laughs> Same music. Yeah, they, he plays it. He would have that kind of music on it in between the, all the conspiracy theories, right? true so i don't know if either of you guys have looked at uh, Stephen halpert's website from 1998 but oh uh, yeah he has a pulled up right here yeah he has a quote on the home screen that i want you guys to weigh in on the validity of it says uh, healing music can help you maintain a strong immune system it is an important integrative medicine in the age of covid19 <laughs> he put that up in 1998 yeah damn foresight <laughs> He actually started COVID-19 to boost his own record sales. God, I knew it. That's next level yeah. marketing. Truly an innovator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I you heard it here first. And you know, I I gotta say, he probably was doing that also to kind of weed out some of the old right wing people. I mean, he's all about planetary healing. What better way than to level the uh, political field here, right? Right. Oof. I'm sure, that's what he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're taking us down a dark path right now, Sean. <laughs> Sometimes you gotta you gotta take some dark measures for that final piece in planetary alignment. Oh, Lord, I didn't know we were going year zero. <laughs> In Steven's defense, this is because he's kind of plays both sides, I've noticed, in different interviews, depending on who he's talking to. And there was one interview I read where the interviewer seemed to be probing, I forget how he phrased it exactly, but was asking him, like, what kind of, or do you have any music for curing this ailment? And Stephen corrected him and was like, well, music doesn't cure ailments. I have music that relaxes people and allows their own body to heal itself. And I think that's a more realistic and probably has more scientific basis to it. And it's hard for me to discern from the interviews how much he actually believes and how much is marketing that works very well to sell products for him. So one other thing I wanted to talk about in regards to this from the record collecting angle is this is a perfect example of the kind of record collecting I like to suggest for people who are going on the cheap and trying to discover new things is when you're checking out a record store, find the genres that are not represented as well as the other ones, the stuff that the, you could tell the store has spent the least amount of time curating. And that's where you're most likely to find really good music that is more underpriced than your standard classic rock or whatever they're trying to hype up. And chances are new age music is going to be the least well-kept section in most record stores. Very likely to find some really amazing synthesizer heavy blow your mind with you know crazy meditation exploration sounds for like two or three bucks it's it's pretty amazing once you dive into it and start looking in areas you might not have before yeah do you have any artists uh just Stephen halpern buy all 80 of his records and then you can go from there these guys are very self-serious i've noticed in a way that at first was very off-putting to me but on the flip side of it, they really do take their craft very seriously. And as a result, it's very explorative and well done, I would say. Yeah, they're not fucking around. So a couple other suggestions of stuff that you're going to be able to find pretty commonly. There's one that I actually really want to do an episode on later. There's a guy by the name of Paul Winter. who had a group called the Winter Consort. Their records are really, really cool. There's one specifically called Icarus that's pretty easy to find and really interesting. And that's, again, a lot of jazz players starting to go off in a new direction and incorporate a lot of Eastern musical styles and explore focusing more on a mood than chord changes and melody. And then Paul Horn, as we mentioned before, is another jazz artist turned new age musician that's really interesting to explore. Some stuff that's harder to find that's really, really good is Laraji, who got his start being discovered by Brian Eno. He was a street musician 
that Brian Eno put on one of his ambient series records and has since had a very well-respected career in the ambient healing music genre. I don't think they're easy to find, but Stephen Helpern's cohort Lassos also is very good. And I would presume cheap because it's new age and nobody's looking for this stuff. Yeah, and even if it's not cheap, again, keep looking at those record stores and you might find some rare vinyl on the cheap. Yeah, Suzanne Chani is excellent as well. I don't believe her records go for very cheap, but her stuff's incredible. Right, and that um, that Light in the Attic compilation I mentioned before came out in 2013, and that's called I Am the Center, Private Issue New Age Music in America, 1950 to 1990. That features Lasso, Stephen Halpern, and Laraji, along with a bunch of other music. Joanna Brook is another one that's really good. But that compilation is a really, really cool place to start. I think it's all on YouTube as well. Excellent. Cool. Well, keep peaceful out there. John, tell them what show this was. This is and was and shall be. I'd buy, I'd that, buy that for a dollar. For a dollar. I'm your host, Sean Hartman. I'm Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. Farewell. Ride off into the sunset with this. Thank you for taking part in our journey together. This final track is Echoes of an Enchanted Sunset. Parentheses, Indigo. Thank you for listening to another enchanted episode of I Buy That for a Dollar. If you would like to support our show's chakras, one excellent way you can do it is to guide your thumb or mouse pointer to the button that says add comment. You may click the comment button Enter any old phrase. It doesn't have to be thoughtful, analytical. It doesn't even have to be a phrase. You could just type some letters in there in the comment box. Push enter. You have done us a great service. Thank you, and join us again soon.